Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, today, we're going to have a great, you know, great show. Uh, Jack Reed from the Community Planet Foundation gave me permission to read his book on the air and hold discussions. Uh, today, my panelists will be Thunder. Go ahead and say hello, Thunder. Hello, Thunder. <laughs> hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before I actually get started on reading the book, it occurred to me I should probably go ahead and uh, take a moment to play Jack Reed's presentation that I told you guys about in my previous interview with Jack Reed. Um, and Jack was gracious enough to give me permission today to use his book, so I'll be doing a whole series about his book the same way I did about The Best of Money Can't Buy. Uh, if you go to the link on the forums that I use for the show, there's a link to communityplanet.org's website. It's basically, it's pretty easy to remember, though. It's just communityplanet.org. And... Um, I have some questions for my listeners. Um, well, first of all, I want to give a big shout-out to the individual who single-handedly filled my donations for the month, <laughs> this month. <laughs> this one guy, it wasn't even March yet, and just bam, all of a sudden I had $100. I really appreciate that. Um, took me by surprise. I am probably going to be – I've got to amass some of that together, though, because uh, my computer is showing signs of actually dying, as in I won't have one. Um, so – my upgrades went from being something that I needed for the sake of perhaps better performance to being something that's going to keep me on the air. So the, if you go to vradio.org, that's v-radio.org, um, you will see a blue donation widget. The blue donation widget is for upgrades to the computer. So anyway, um, all that unpleasantness out of the way, thank you all for tuning in. Um, the listener base is slowly but steadily growing. Feel free to share V Radio with anybody you want. Um, feel free to put the players. You can get like a HTML to put my player on your websites and on your MySpaces. It's totally fine. Um, use any of my material for whatever you want. That's no problem. And um, I'm still looking for more uh, response for the uh, the V Radio uh, logo contest that I started on the forums. Um, we've had some submissions that have been good so far, but I wanted to give some more, you know, get some more ideas, see what was more out there. And uh, the winner of that contest will actually get the first T-shirt that I ever make with that um, logo. Uh, any proceeds that will go towards those T-shirts will go directly to V Radio. And I'm trying to figure out a way to uh, report any T-shirts I sell towards my monthly dues, but I haven't been able to figure out a way to do that yet because I would like to just take it out of it. But the whole goal really is just to try to cross-promote V-Radio and the Venus Project and give somebody a product for their donation rather than just asking for money. So in any case, uh, that being said, um, I'm going to play this uh, Community Planet Foundation presentation. I will probably pause it every now and then because sometimes as he's giving his presentation, there are parts of it where he's pointing at pictures on the wall, and it won't make a lot of sense unless I explain it to you. So I'll pause it for that, and then after we're finished, Thunder and I are going to read and comment on the book. So thanks again for tuning in. I'm going to go ahead and get that started. Go ahead and mute, Thunder.
actually, it looks like I'm going to have to let that buffer for a minute because um, I thought I was uh, buffering it, and it's not buffering. So I'm going to have to wait a moment because for some reason it's running slow. I'm having problems with my – this is one of the problems I'm having with my computer. Um, the Internet connection problems happen as well, but um, in any case, as soon as it looks like that may have caught up now, I just didn't want to have a bunch of dead air and you guys not know what's going on, so I'm going to try again here. Thanks again for your patience. to do whatever we want on the planet. The people in this room, we're the decision makers. It's not anybody else. Just imagine that. Could we, the people in this room, design a system that worked work for everyone? We can throw out all the traditional paradigms, everything we know about what's happening socially, economically, politically, in terms of we don't have to do any of that. All we have to do as a group of people here is to design something that would work for everybody to take care of everybody on the planet in the most beneficial way for everybody. Could we do it? Okay, so, so the solution is out there. The, the way to start with doing this is that most people have no idea what it would look like. So what if we created a community, say, of 500 people, and we designed it in a way that worked for everybody, so that everybody was living incredibly abundant lives, healthy, connected, and by that I mean connecting within themselves and with other people, because most people on the planet have no idea what it's like to really connect with other people, because very few people have done the inner journey to really connect with themselves. And these people were living in a way that they, they had far less stress, they were working less, they were more integrated with nature, and they were having much more fun. So other people looking at this, they would say, you know, those people are living a whole lot better than we are. What, what do we need to do to get from here to there? And that is what's going to change the planet. It's not going to be struggle against the existing model. It's not going to be a struggle to try and change anything. It's going to be that vision. And if we can then take that community and make a cluster of communities that's like five or six, so we're dealing with about 3,000 people, so that the world can see it. And the way we design everything and the way we do everything, that is going to be what changes everything else. Here's what I'm going to present to you. There is a solution. I just gave it to you, and the solution for everything is the solution to anything. I, uh, I, I have friends challenge me. I say, give me a problem. Give me a problem. And they give me any problem. One of my friends says, I've got a headache right now. And I showed him how the solution that I just presented to you is the solution for everybody else. I think the one thing I don't cover is when, when person A likes person B who likes person C, 
I don't get into that, but still the community would address that. <laughs> that we have arrived at the place that we're at because of our every person for themselves system. That is at the source that is at the source of most of the problems that we have. And that the way we live together and relate together in community is the basic building block needed to transform this planet. And you notice when I say community, and every place you see community in my book, it's a capital C, so that it can be differentiated with the traditional concept that people have of community, small c. When I talk community, I'm talking the vision that I just presented to you. My story. When I was around 15 years old, I read a book that was called uh, uh, Lemuria, the Lost Continent of the Pacific, and it talked about how community life was in Lemuria. And I got very inspired about how if we were living that way at this time, that it could change everything else on the planet, that it would end hunger, address poverty, address all the inequalities, the imbalances, because these people really considered themselves one family. So I got all excited about that idea because I was interested only in transforming the planet and only in something that would address everything else or else I wasn't interested. And eventually I figured out, oh, I've got to get this vision so that people can see it, so that people know what I'm talking about. So I got together with a group of people and we created a class through the Peace Theological Seminary in Los Angeles which was to design and put down on paper a description of the community. I thought it was going to be a 10-week class. At the end of the first meeting, I could tell that the class had different ideas in mind because I was going to just cover things like, okay, well, how's it going to work with administration decision-making? How's it going to work with economics? How's it going to work in terms of food production? And it was like, no, those are the, those are the boring questions. We need to ask some more expansive questions. So this 10-week class um, became a lot longer than that. But the first thing they wanted to do was to take a look at what was happening on the planet currently. And so we pretended like we were from the planet Kunga Wunga Junga. It's not my word. Somebody else in the class came up with it. We even created a little dance that was called the Kunga Wunga Junga. Go. And uh, so we, we would start having a lot of fun with these concepts, which is part of the essence of the creative process. So on this planet, Kankawanga Jaga, where we came from, for a thousand years, we lived in a way that we were considered all one family. That was where we were coming from. That there were no such words as poverty or lack or wealth, even, because there was no comparative thing. It wasn't that anybody had more or less. We were one family. We'd made it work for everybody. It was from renewable resources. So we weren't mining the planet for everything. It had been completely sustainable for a thousand years. The planet was considered to be all ours. There was no divisions in terms of, I've got to enclose this as my space or this country, this is ours and it's not yours. It's like the whole planet was considered ours. That there was no isolation and alienation because everybody had connected inside 
and therefore they knew how to connect with other people. And in fact, they knew how to connect with, with nature as we're finding more and more that all things have life. And our, of course, our Native American friends have known that for a long time. That everyone was supported to maximize their potential. This was not a, we were not a lazy society just because we'd had it work for everyone. That everyone was encouraged to bring forward those inner gifts within them. And that we all lived according to the guidelines of the highest good for all. And you'll hear that mentioned again and again and again by me and in the book because that's what I called the design itself that we came up with. It's for the highest good of all. Okay, so then uh, this 10-week this class became three years, meeting about every week. <laughs> and uh, uh, at the end of that time, we came up with our vision that we wrote in a 45-page paper. And after we had that, then we created the Nonprofit Community Planet Foundation. So here's our situation that we've got on the planet right now, and I know that most of you know this, but the planet the way it is, according to the, how we do things in the United States, could support about two billion people if it was exported to everybody, or else we would need six planets, which we don't have. But that's what we've got going in terms of the lifestyle in this country, and, and uh, we're exporting that everywhere. So uh, people love to speak in sound bites. But here's a sound bite for you. The political systems are broken. And here's another one. The economic systems are broken. So a little detail on the first one is this is from Justice, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. We do not have a representative democracy in the United States. We have an unequal democracy where the major decisions that affect our lives are driven by power, money, interests. We need to return to the people the decision-making that affects their everyday lives. And we all, we all know this, and this is very, very obvious, and yet the system goes on as if there are no other choices. And a second quote from Mussolini, fascism should more properly be called corporatism since it is the merger of state and corporate power. Does that sound like any place we know? And competitive society will always have people at the bottom who have too little to balance those at the top that have too much. That is the essence of the every person for themselves system. <laughs> Our economic system has impoverished the planet at the expense of most of its inhabitants. But as I said, instead of renting it in, we're, we're exporting it everywhere as if capitalism, according to the United States and Western Europe, is, is that's the fundamental thing that everybody has to have. Six planets. There is something fundamentally wrong with treating the earth as if it were a business and liquidation. And anybody responsible knows this, is that we're mining the earth at such an extent that we just simply cannot continue. 
the time estimates are are differing, but I think there's common agreement that within the next 20, 30 years that the quality of life for everybody on the planet is going to be greatly diminished, and that includes the people at the top as well. So how did we get to this place that we're at? Again, I submit to you that for thousands of years, unquestioned on the planet, there have been variations of this legacy of the every person for themselves system. It's like, it's like we're in this hypnotic place where we think that's the way it has to be because that's the way it's always been. It's like Darwin's survival of the fittest. And it's like, so what? There's, there's people at the top. They say, if we redistributed the money, it'd all fall back into the same hands anyway. That's the justification for doing it the way we're doing it. But the mediums of exchange, at first money was, was thought to be a convenience that, that it made things easier so I didn't have to take a big a pig, a big pig, to trade for a basket, to trade for a cow, that it just made, to have some shells, it just made the system of exchange between one village or region and another, it made it easier. And then, at some point, it's like it took over. So that money itself became the monster. And now it's like, well, we do something. We can't address poverty. We can't address the infrastructure. We can't address health care because we don't have enough of this. If we had more of this, we could fix all of those things. And yet, what is this? It's just, these were the shells. This, this was just what they used as, as to say we can't do something because there's not enough money is to say we can't do something because there's not enough cooperation. And yet, when they have a major earthquake, they say, oh, this is a good thing because it could, it could aid economic growth. Whenever there's a crisis, a war, a natural disaster or something, they say, oh, economically, this is a good thing because it frees up the money. Where did the money come from? To have a war, where, where did the money come from to, to fix things that, that needed to be fixed or to do things in a different way? It's not the money. It's the every person for themselves system. The system has bred separation and againstness. Separation in terms of classes, separation in terms of access to other people as we don't consider ourselves one family, but we put boundaries around well, this is mine, and i got to protect this. And that the other thing that's happened is that we've had no ideas how to work in, in groups of people. I've, done, I've had years and years of doing team building and, uh, with many corporations, with many groups of people. And what I saw was that there was hardly anybody who had any idea how to do a group initiative how to really communicate effectively to do it. We, this, this one time I was doing this event for the very sharpest people from BMW, I mean the geniuses from around the world who were the best and the facilitators said, we're going to really have to challenge these people because they're going to be very sharp. I thought to myself, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> and sure enough, they were just a little worse than the average group of people. 
because nobody had any idea how to collectively get together and make a decision that would be for the highest good of the group. So everything was either built, everything that you see out there was either built haphazardly or it was built autocratically. It was never built by a group of people like us getting together and saying, what's really going to work in terms of the design for everybody? So communities were built by first a building came, a person put one thing up, and then a person put another house up or another building, and somebody came in and put a business up. And then you ended up with something looking a little bit like, you see, we take the farmland, and then, and then we uh, take it and say, okay, let's put up some houses. Doesn't that look like an attractive place to live? I wonder if any of these people know many of their neighbors. But again, this is survival in the every person for themselves system. In terms of the solution, again, the systems theory in physics is telling us now that everything. Just to give you an idea as to what he was pointing at in that particular picture, he was pointing at uh, basically his picture of your typical urban sprawl where you know everybody's crowded together and it looks really ugly on the landscape. Um, so I just, once again, as I was saying earlier, I'm going to give you guys a guide as to what exactly he's pointing at. So that's what he was pointing at, and I'm going to continue. It's interconnected. There's even some great quotes in there by John Muir and some other people on that hanging up in the hall there. And so we can't really change anything by railing against one cause or another. It's just not going to work. Again, I, I submit to you that by railing against one point or another, it's like putting band-aids on problems. That's all we're doing when, when we're doing that. This is from the World Commission on Environment and Development. They say the time has come to break out of past patterns, attempts to maintain social and ecological stability. Through old approaches to development and environmental protection will increase instability. Security must be sought through change. This commission has noted a number of actions that must be taken to reduce risk to survival and to put future development on paths that are sustainable. And in bold I say, yet we are aware that such a reorientation on a continuing basis is simply beyond the reach of present decision-making structures and institutional arrangements, both nat national and international. That's because they recognize that the governments and the big businesses, they're never going to be able to institute the changes that are necessary because they can't create the vision that I laid out to you originally. And because everything is interconnected, their attempts at trying to fix anything is, again, just going to be a band-aid approach. It's not going to be a government that changes things. It's going to be a community of 3,000 people that changes the planet. Again, that solution has to come from recognizing that everything is interconnected. So again, the solution for everything is the solution to anything. The first step would be to create this model community that, we, that I'm talking about with the intention on an on the scale that is needed to attract worldwide interest. I'm guessing that's about 3,000 people, and I'll get into a little bit of why that's so later. 
But again, as I said, the quality of life has to be at a point where people can look at what these people are doing and say, that's very different, they're far more abundant, they're far more healthy and happy, and I want to be there. <laughs> to toss out that that is unnecessary with the way we've set up our economic system is we've created jobs and, and nonsense products for people to try and survive on their own that are simply unnecessary. The other thing that, we can, that has to happen is that we can't retrofit existing communities, in my mind. That this model that's going to transform everything has to be created with absolute integrity in terms of its design, its sustainability, its energy sources, its water sources, and in a way that it looks like an Epcot Center kind of a design. So it's not like taking an existing community and saying, oh, okay, we'll just try and make this every person, this model that was designed in the every person for themselves system and try and make it work for the highest good of all. It's like, no, we need to create a model that stands as like, wow, that's very different. The size of about 500 people, as I said, in the cluster, I went over that earlier. The community belongs to everyone. That has to be part of the model. And that would mean no individual ownership of the land, of the houses, because then people could inherit their way in. And it's going to take the consciousness, the people who are there holding the consciousness to do this, as well as just living in the form. And again, this model has to be based on the highest good for all. So our group came up with, when we were, as I said, they wanted to ask more expansive questions. So we, in describing the 45-page the document and covering how the community would work, these are the concepts we came up with that covered every aspect of the community. The first one, how do we share our abundance, is we decided that the thing to do was to redefine wealth as use and access rather than possession. I was just at my nephew's house a couple of nights ago, and the amount of plastic things that they have for toys for their kids are just amazing. And it's just amazing the amount of stuff that each of us has that if we were sharing these things, we would need far, far fewer of these kinds of things. We don't need a swimming pool in our backyard or a tennis court in our backyard. We just need access to things that we don't have to own. We don't need, for 500 people, how many cars do you think we would really need for 500 people if it's a pedestrian community that most of us are living and working there, that we're walking every place that we're going, and the only time we need the car is to leave there and, and go someplace else? We would probably need fewer than, definitely fewer than 40 cars for 500 people. And the savings on that, I mean, if we're talking even in terms of monetary, it's just amazing when we talk about insurance and maintenance and upkeep and everything else. We don't need a boat if we're living by the ocean, you know, like we, we don't need a boat for everybody. We just need access to a boat. If you look in any harbor and it's like, those boats are going unused 99% of the time. This is uh, my version of the economic system, that it was supposed to be that manpower plus resources plus a medium of exchange, that would equal abundance for the planet. And yet, in the every person's themselves system, 
the manpower, it's like one person out of six is engaged in something that's actually adding to producing something beneficial for the planet. And then all the resources that go to supporting those other five-sixths of the people, all the paper that's produced, all the nonsense products that are produced, it's just an incredible, and all the energy to light the buildings that, where these people go to work, and all the professions, most of the legal profession, most of the economic profession, a lot of the retail profession, don't really have to exist in a cooperative society. The money is the immediate exchange. We get a little bit of abundance. We get inequality and poverty, and we just basically destroy the planet. In a highest good for all system, we've got cooperation as the medium of exchange, so that leads to abundance, not only for everyone, but for all life on the planet, because we've got to consider nature as our partner. Sustainability and replenishing the planet's resources, which we would have the manpower to do, actually, at that point, and peace. And my favorite cartoon in my book, my book, I put in cartoons. <laughs> you can read that for yourself. And uh, the next topic was was how we reach consent. How do we reach consensus? So we define consensus not in terms of how politically they define consensus, which is just compromise, but instead. The essence of consensus really is creativity. If we're not in consensus as a group, chances are that we haven't exercised all the creativity that we need. And our group of, of five people that was putting together this vision, we had the one woman in our group who was very intuitive. The rest of us would come up intellectually with a concept. We thought, okay, this is it, and we'd get all excited about it. And, and we'd say, well, what do you think? Because we, we decided we were going to do everything by consensus. And we couldn't really record anything as being through with that until, until everyone had agreed. So she would say, that's not it. And we would say, what do you mean that's not it? This is it. We're, we've, this is great. And she'd say, it's not it. And so we'd say, well, what's wrong? And she'd say, I don't know. And we say, well, how would you do it? I don't know. I just know that it's not it. And so we'd have to put things on hold until the next week we'd come back, hoping she had changed her mind. This is not it. So eventually, out of uh, resignation, we'd have to say, okay. And then we just got goofy and started coming up with crazy ideas and having fun with it and throwing out this, that, and the other thing. And in that process, we would hit upon something and build upon something, and then we'd move to a whole other level in terms of how we were thinking about it and how we were going to describe it. And then she would say, that's it. And if we had not been honoring, through consensus, everybody's voice in the group, even if they don't have the solution, we never would have been able to get the kind of description and the quality of the description that, that we had. And so... Um, I learned something about consensus. We later developed a, a training, a consensus decision-making training that uh, 
uh, we did several of those. The couples who took it said it was the best couples training, uh, training they'd ever had. And I thought, I wonder why that is. It's because you really have to learn how to communicate with other people and how to listen and how to take responsibility for, for what's happening in, inside. We've become a collection of minority groups in this country, and that's what the majority rules systems, that's what democracies do in, in any kind of system where there's voting. That's what it does, because everybody eventually feels disenfranchised about something, so that's why politically they always vote against things. And, and so Gandhi, he says that, well, you can read it, but he says that he doesn't believe in this doctrine of the majority rule, because it says it's a heartless doctrine that has done harm to humanity. The only real dignified human doctrine is the greatest good of all. You must have read my book. <laughs> how do we reach, oh, how do we interact with our environment? There's ways to create all our own energy systems, to create all our own water. The technology is there. A lot of it has been suppressed. There's even traditional ways of doing this, uh, as our friend Atsuo was describing some of the latest technology in terms of solar cell, or in terms of solar energy. But there's, even without going into the, the kinds of things that have been, that we haven't been able to do because of the economic forces that would stop people, there's still traditional things that can be done. How do we beautify our environment? There's several of these drawings around the room. That, about how things could look a, a, as contrasted with that earlier drawing that you saw. But how do we enjoy ourselves? We're going to have to start learning to live with more fun in our lives. That in a community like this, imagine what you could do in a community like this where you're connected with people, where you can share resources, where you can share musical instrument or plays. Whatever your interests are, there would be people that you could share that with. You wouldn't have to buy all these things and have them in your closet or in your garage. There are people to do things with. People have lost the concept of play because they think, well, it's too hard, I go to work, I come back from all the commuting, I'm stressed out, and I don't have enough energy and to think about getting up, uh, I might as well go to the gym because that's where I can get some exercise and the exercise on the machines. Remember when we were kids, we used to play, get out and actually play with people and do things and interact, and that's been lost, and we can get it back in these communities. Uh, how do we coordinate what we'd love to do? Again, most of the jobs that exist don't need to exist. And a lot of the jobs that are undesirable, it's simply a matter of creative, creatively figuring out another way to do it or making them more fun. And out of the how do we enjoy ourselves, they'll be a minister of fun, and their job is going to be to go around and help everybody make things fun. Well, the UN says that the that the stress is, a, is going to be one of the major health uh, issues in, in the world. And the top seven selling drugs 
all for stress. How do we nourish ourselves? Food right now, average in the United States, 1,500 miles to market. We can create local, edible landscaping and, and local food production using permaculture, using the techniques. We don't need to use chemicals, which are an incredible problem. And how do we vitalize ourselves? Preventative medicine and health for everybody. This is one area where we're going to need more jobs, incidentally, is there's no reason why we shouldn't, each of us, and I don't think I'd find anybody in the room disagreeing with me, each of us at least one massage a week. So that's the one job classification that we'll need more of, is more uh, massage technicians. How do we bring forth inner wisdom? The community itself is going to be a school. And it's, this question is very different from the traditional question, which is, how do we teach you what we want you to know? How do we communicate? This is both uh, workshops and communication. It also uh, covers the, the technology of communication. If you, look, if you remember back to that hub system, we figured out a way technologically where the entire 500-person community could make decisions by consensus. And finally, how do we expand our community? This hub group has the responsibility, and everybody would be in one of these 12 hub groups, as well as in another hub, which we call Essence Hubs, which is where people get together and, and are in the decision-making process. But these are uh, hubs that involve the various aspects of work in the community and how do we expand has the responsibility both for screening people so that they know how to work consensus, they hold the consciousness of the highest good, and only then can they be a part of the decision-making structure of the community. And their other responsibility is how do we get this vision out to the planet? Because remember, this is not an isolated community, but this community has the responsibility of changing the planet. This is an example of the cluster. I said it'd take a cluster of about six communities to create 3,000. Might look something like that. Bucky Fuller said, in order to change something, we've gone over this before, don't struggle to change the existing model, create a new one and make the old one obsolete. My friend Margaret supplied the quote. It's noted on the back cover of the second edition of the book because this is really the essence of what has to happen. Okay, so if we don't do it, well, you see what happens. Our place in history, this is what's going to happen 50 years from now if we do nothing. What will they say? They're going to say we engaged in financially driven chemical experimentation in terms of global warming and everything we're doing to the air, water, and land, that we basically used up the planet's resources without regard to future generations, without regard to the quality of life for our grandchildren. The historians will absolutely write about our time and say these things about us right now unless we do something different. And how we bad to big money and power broker interests because we said, oh, these people... We couldn't do anything about those people because they have all the power to make all the decisions. Well, they do have the power to make the decisions in that paradigm. But as Bucky said, we just need to create a different paradigm completely. And that we considered the planet's problems 
too big, too scary to think about, so we just basically said, well, hope for the best. And that's where a lot of people are. They're asleep and hoping for the best. But not us. There are enough resources and there's enough power on the planet for life to work for everyone. But we're not doing it because of the legacy for the every person for themselves approach. It's now time that we do something different. And again, I say to you that the way we live together and relate together in community is the basic building block needed to transform the planet and in fact, I believe is the only building block that tra will transform the planet because it just can't be done within the existing structure. The new paradigm can only be created by a group of people who absolutely hold the consciousness of the highest good for all and have the vision to bring that into manifestation. This, is, this model is not something that anybody can, you can just take anybody and say, okay, well, let's do it. It takes the education and consciousness to do it. And again, people need to see that there's a better way. We need to create that model out there for people to look at. So they say, those people are living far better than I am. How do I get from here to there? That's going to be what changes the planet. It is possible that the next will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community. A community practicing understanding and loving kindness. A community practicing mindful living. This may be the most important thing we can do for the survival of the Earth. I must have read his book. This is how we considered, this is how we ended the postscript on, on the Community Planet Foundation. And I was, I was so, every time I read it in the book, it's interesting, I'm sitting there reading it by myself. And every time I read this, it gets me misty. We believe that the keys to world peace and prosperity are recognizing our oneness with all life, having a consciousness of sharing and cooperation, in acting and loving. If we lived in those ways, we could eliminate hunger, poverty, and the isolation and alienation of those who are perceived as being different from ourselves. The idea of community has come forth to provide a working model for living together in greater harmony with ourselves, each other, and all life on the planet. It is our hope that historians will look back at this time and write something like, the people of the early 21st century recognized that they had to wake up and stop doing life that has been done for thousands of years. They realized that to survive, it could no longer be me versus you or us versus them, but that it had to be just us. They finally realized that they had all the resources and manpower to make the world work for everyone, and they just did it. And so, may we just do it. And that was Jack Reed, the author of the book we're getting ready to read um, from Community Planet. Uh, you can check out communityplanet.org. You can also watch the video that I just played the audio from. Uh, and there it gives like you know various accompanying pictures. He was basically doing a slideshow slide presentation. Um, 
at the UN World Environment Day. Uh, before everybody panics about the UN, it's just it's it's one of the things the UN does that's kind of ignored. But anyway, um, so Thunder, you want to come on real quick and give some comments about that? Yeah, I I watched part of that earlier. I didn't get a chance to listen to all of it until just now, and it's amazing how much in line with Jock Fresco's ideas and, and, of course, the ideas of the movement that he's parroting or, you know, speaking similarly. I mean, I, I almost like hearing Jock talk, and it's like, why aren't these two guys getting together? Right. Now, i got to play devil's advocate a little bit here mm-hmm. because he and he had so many things to say. I tried to write a few things down, but... Um, one of the things he mentioned that maybe I misunderstood is um, he was uh, making reference to the Native Americans and how they all got along. And maybe I misunderstood, but it, he, it, he impressed upon me or the idea that all of the different tribes, if you will, got along with each other. And we know from history that that's not true. I think that, he was, just, just to clarify, I, not to interrupt, but I, I think because I already know what you're going to be at. I think what he was trying to say is they knew that they needed to get along with the environment. That I think right. he was referring to the environment. He wasn't necessarily right. talking any, about it. Yeah. I mean, even the, then, the, 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 the wars that went on between Native Americans, in many cases, you know, like, because uh, I knew some guys, obviously, and sometimes they would settle disputes with a really rough game of lacrosse. And I'm not saying that they didn't fight each other, but I am saying right. that the kind of mass scale massacres that you would see out of the Europeans <laughs> Yeah. Um, not really as much. I mean, it depends on where you go. I mean, some of the Mexican tribes, for example, were like human sacrificers and stuff like that. But, but at the end of the day, if you remember, one of the things that confused the Native Americans when the white man showed up was that they wanted to own land for themselves, that they, you know, uh, didn't value the earth, and they didn't seem to care what the effects of their technology was doing to the earth, and that they right. seemed to realize or value that. We are part of the Earth. We're not like you know. I mean, at, at this point, if if you looked at you know the the Earth as a as a living being, then the the human being would you know has gone from being. It's almost like we're a cancer. We are we are cells that started off as part of the Earth, and we're slowly becoming the death of the Earth, and that's what makes us cancer. Agreed. agreed. You know, and I think that that's it's a large part of what he's going to get into in this book. One of the reasons I asked him permission is he's got some real hard data to emphasize on here, you know, that I think is really going to wake some things up um, for us is like, you know, how pressing this really is. And more to the point, as we were saying earlier in our phone conversation, you know, was that it's not just a matter of capitalism doesn't work because it lets people starve. Okay, that, that's, that's just like half the problem. Right. And maybe even just a quarter of the problem. When you compare it to capitalism is going to destroy the planet. We can't maintain it. Even if everything was working according to plan within the free market principles, let's say that all of the Ayn Rand utopian notions that, you know, the free market can work, let's say that all of them came true and that everybody was able to start their own businesses and yada, yada, yada. Well, um, the world has finite resources and capitalism depends on infinite expansion and exchange. Eventually, we're going to run out of resources. And, you know, as we've already seen, uh, the profit structure does a really good job to make sure that, you know, businesses are not efficient. It makes sure that they're profitable. Efficient does not equal profit. So 
bearing all of that in mind, um, did you go ahead and go over the rest of your notes? Yeah, I just I, the other the only other thing that I mean, don't and don't get me wrong, this guy is fantastic. He he absolutely is speaking our language, sort of you know, so to say. Um, the only thing that I'm kind of cringing about is when he says things like, it's only going to take 3,000 people in this community idea that I have to change the planet. And I think that's a little naive because I just had this discussion with several people in TeamSpeak the other day, I think it was yesterday, that wouldn't it, you know, we talk about this number in the Zeitgeist movement of 370,000, which I won't you know, I won't go off on a tangent about that, but we know that that's just 370,000 people that signed up for, you know, for the website. That doesn't necessarily equate to that many people actually being active members of the Zeitgeist movement. But my point being is what if that number hit a million? That's to us, to us being a new movement, that's a great milestone, but it's still a drop in the bucket. It's still a grain of sand on all the beaches. What if we hit 100 million people in the zeitgeist movement? That's still, in my opinion, not enough. So for right. him to think that 3,000 people in this community could change the world, maybe it will. I just don't, I don't see it. I don't see how it could because if it, if it were true, all these other communities that have sprung up all over would have already done that, and they haven't. Well, that's, you know, I'd like to investigate those communities a little bit closer, but one of the things that he brought up uh, um, during the interview was that in order to be a participant in what he is doing, you have to be screened. Um, and he doesn't mean, you know, in a fascist sense. It had more has to do with the fact that he knows that these communities can't work unless there's a certain degree of, uh, you have to have the right mentality. You know, he talks about that in the, in the program we just listened right. to. And if Which you I don't have the with. right mentality, you will fail. You know, and he talks about the smaller communities, and you know, that it's possible that you know I think that you know that is a problem. Um, you know, is that you know that I agree that we need more people than that to really get something started. But um, I think, however, that at least when it comes to the foundational principles that I think a lot of these other splinter groups that want to leave the Zeitgeist movement to go do their own thing or want to try right. to force us into a referendum where we can force the zeitgeist movement to go try to build a community, you right. know, is that they don't have the right mentality. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to do that, you know. I agree. And, and, I and, agree. What, and what he's talking about as far as consensus is the way that decision-making would be made in the future, but it's not, you know, and even in, in Jacques' future, but it's not, uh, because it's not really democratically either. It's, it's that we will, you know, the, the answers will be obvious, when you're truly educated, that's that's when you'll know. You don't have to argue at that point. Somebody's going to look at you and say, "Well, I think X," and you're going to be like, "Okay, well, what about Y?" And then, "Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Well, both X and Y have meritorious points." Rather than, "Well, you don't agree with Y, so screw you, pal." Yeah. Well, you don't agree with X, so I'm going to take my ball and go home. You know, these are the problems that have to be gone. The kind of right. the lack of values. For, you know, that's why I said to people earlier, like when I said, when will we build a city? Why are we not building a city? I pointed out that behavior as being one of the biggest reasons why it would fail. You know, right. Especially, and, and go ahead. I'm just going to say that was, before we get too far off, that was my final um, issue that I would sure like to get a little more clarification from him on when he talks about consensus because 
um, it, again, I, I need more information, but based on what I'm hearing or what I'm understanding is that still based on opinion, and, and mm -hmm. it's not a systems approach that we talk about. It's not an arriving at decisions approach. It's still based on some form of, of, of a person or, or panel or this, these, these uh, groups that he talks about. It's still based on their opinion of consensus to arriving at decisions instead of a systems approach of arriving. And, and again, maybe I don't have enough information, but it seems like that may be one of the points that, that needs to be addressed in, in, his, uh, in his idea. No, and I, I agree. And I think that it's the reason I'm less worried about it with somebody like him is that I could, I could, I could have consensus with a guy who's as you know, advanced as this person is. I'm not worried about, you know, getting into arguments with this person. I mean, and he does want, you know, when you read, when I read his book, like to you, you'll see that he really does know what he's talking about. He's just studies, you know, he's gathered a lot of data. So, I mean, he's definitely right. not just talking out of his derriere. Okay. Well, like I said, I may not have all the information. It just seems to me like there's some pieces missing or some pieces that aren't quite fitting in right or something and so well i know i mean it's, it's not the zeitgeist movement but it's still better right. than you know it's better than i mean honestly as scary as I, as this sound in comparison to a lot of the other attempts at splinter groups of the zeitgeist movement this guy i yeah. don't mind and if i don't either I, he's he's got the right idea and and i like the direction he wants to go and i like his rhetoric mm -hmm. um it's right for the most part it's right in line with what we're doing um i'm just I'm, you know, I, I mean, maybe for a transitional solution to get to where we need to go. I, again, I like his rhetoric because he speaks about, uh, you know, to, to rephrase it in the term that I use a lot is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, as we get from Star Trek or whatever. Um, so he has that same basic rhetoric about it's not the system we have now is uh, all for me. It's all about me what's in it for me, and we need to do away with that. We need to outgrow that, and I totally agree with that philosophy. Absolutely. Um, and to answer some questions of people, if, if you would like to join me, uh, join the show via Skype, then add my Skype uh, to you. That's VTV115. Add my Skype to your Skype, basically. Add me as a contact. Don't call me on it. PM me, and then I will add you to the conference call at the appropriate time. The other option is to call in via the blog talk switchboard. Um, I actually, something for those of you who are listening, I want to ask the listeners also is there is an option that if I make a small investment, I could give us a 1-800 number, a toll-free number to call in to blog talk radio. Um, if you guys would actually make use of it, then please do me a favor and email me and say that you'd like me to go ahead and do that. If not, I'm not going to bother. Um, but, yeah, so basically, I'll basically be opening the lines. If you guys have anything to comment on, on anything that we're reading or anything that we're saying, if you want to call in, go ahead and let me know. You know, I mean, I, it's no problem. So, um, did you have anything further, Thunder, before we get started on this book? No, that was it. I'm ready to hear more. Okay. All right. Um, this book is called The Next Evolution: A Blueprint for Transforming the Planet by Jack Reed. I'm going to go ahead and read the forward here. Uh, forward by Neil Donald Walsh, Introduction to the Next Evolution, a Blueprint for Transforming the Planet. All the world is searching for a new tomorrow, 
We seek new and more effective ways to create ourselves as human society. We may not have all the answers to life's biggest mysteries, but we know now many of the questions. Why can't we get along? Why can't we harmonize? Why can't we find a way to live together in peace? What stops us from sharing in a way that provides something for all, for all and misery for none? Why can't the human race get its act together? What will it take for us to stop our own seemingly inexorable drive to self-destruction? If there were a way for us to cohabitate on this planet, to share the space we have and given by the gods, and to be with each other in joy and celebration, what would it be? These are the questions that have confronted humanity from the beginning of time, and they are the questions that are confronting humanity now. But the answers are now more urgently needed than ever. For we have reached a point where the world can no longer tolerate another of humanity's temper tantrums. If one of us steps out of line now, we could bring an end to the entire human adventure. None of us wants that, but some of us are acting as if we are willing to make it. As I said in Conversations with God, Book 1, this is once again a forward by somebody else, uh, we, must we must change from the everyone-for-themselves model. We need to deeply explore an alternative way of living together on the earth. Jack Reed did exactly that. He met with a small group of people for three years and explored with them in, e in detail what it would look like for a community and for an entire society to live in the highest good for all model. And how that model, along with the necessary consciousness, would inspire others to both strive for the consciousness as well as transform the whole economic, political, social, environmental model. I am impressed with Jack Reed's work. I may not agree with every conclusion to which he and his group have come. I may not concur with every suggestion they have made, but I appreciate at the depth, at the depth of my being their will in the I'm sorry, yeah, at the depth of my being their willingness to examine the question, to explore the issues, and to develop a model to place on the table for discussion by the whole of the community. Or I'm sorry, the whole of humanity. Freudian slip. Let us then use this model. Let us take then take advantage of this sterling work. Let us then receive this gift from Jack Reed and his companions on the journey of life who have given us one path that we might all take as we continue on our own journey. Let us see that there is what there is to see about all of this. Let us use this model as a starting point for a wider discussion. As the U.S. President John F. Kennedy said in the 1960s, we will not accomplish our goal in the first 100 days nor in the first 1,000 days, but let us begin. The human heart and the human mind cry out for an end to the killing, to the violence, to the conflict, and to the cruelty which has marked human interactions for so many thousands of years. The human soul calls out, who will be on humanity's team? I join Jack Reed in seeking a newer world, and I applaud his dedication, commitment, and higher in, high intention to produce a plan of action that we might investigate and discuss with real seriousness and with a genuine opportunity to, at last, alter the human experience. There must be a way for people to live together in peace, and there is. It is not true that some people are. Um, it is not true that people. It is not true that people are naturally aggressive. That power over rather than power with is the natural order of things, and that survival of the fittest and the law of the jungle are the natural mandates of human civilization. These are primitive concepts that do not, in fact, ensure our survival, but mitigate against it. These are elementary ideas that hold in place elementary behaviors and then keep the human race at elementary levels of evolution, even as the process of evolution itself urges us beyond them. 
for some ideas that are definitely not elementary ideas, but could lead to the advancement of the human species to levels of collective experience more wonderful than any of us might heretofore have imagined, read this book from cover to cover and do not agree with every word of it any more than I did. Question, question, question everything in it. Use it as the beginning, not the end, of a discussion that could change the world. And if changing the world is something that you feel up to, accept my personal invitation as well to join Humanities Team, a worldwide outreach which has been created to, as Jack Reed has done here, open the door for people to find a way to live together in peace at last. More information on this initiative, go to www.humanitiesteam.com. We live in a time when every initiative must be taken, every attempt must be made, every opportunity must be embraced to bring about the kind of shift, the kind of raising of our collective consciousness, and the kind of change in, the, in our most basic beliefs that would produce the world of which we have dreamt from the beginning and that we are all capable of co-creating. Let us begin this work together, and thank you, Jack, for your contribution to that effort. Neil Donald Walsh, Ashland, Oregon, April 2003. Okay. Treeface. Have you ever wondered what you would do with your life if you had all the resources you need and if you didn't have to be concerned with the impact your choice would make on anyone else? Man, I know exactly what I'd do. I'm really kind of a beach bum by nature. If I didn't have a passionate commitment to making this world a better place for all people, I would have long since retired to some tropical beach where I could spend my days in the ocean enjoying an endless procession of perfect waves take walks on the beach and sip coconuts while listening to the wind rustling the palms. I'd have another, I'm sorry, I'd have an organic garden and a great stereo system for classic rock and reggae, and I'd invite my friends to come and stay with me for long periods of time. Sounds good, doesn't it? I actually have the resources to do this, and every once in a while I realize that I could do it right now. But just as quickly, I think of all the challenges that the planet, the people of the world, and future generations are facing, challenges that threaten the very survival of humanity. So because I can see a very workable solution, I feel that it would be selfish for me to isolate myself in, the, in my idea of paradise without participating in creating the solution. Alas, I've always cared about all the peoples of the world, and since I was 15, I've been thinking about the big picture of how to make the world truly work for everyone. This book, then, is a description of the solution that I see. This solution would would ne rather naturally bring about the greatest revolution in living since people first began the current way that we live and interact with each other. Because I myself like to read ideas and descriptions that are concise and not drawn out, I have attempted to be concise. However, you will see that I also reiterate ideas that are important because we currently are living and relating with each other and the planet in a thousands of years old paradigm that is no longer viable if we want to have life, a high quality of life, in the next century. We need, therefore, to step out of the box and challenge some old assumptions. To that end, I have chosen to continually challenge you to look anew at how we, as people, live together. Jack Reed. Chapter 1, The Big Question. Sorry, I had to take a sip of water. As we look at our cities, our country, and our planet, we know what the challenges are. They are the problem buzzwords of our time, poverty, hunger, the economy, pollution, health care, and crime, war, and the increasing destruction of our environment. Most of us are aware of the doom and gloom scenarios about what will happen by, say, the year 2020, 
when the population has grown to 8.2 billion or more, there just isn't enough food to feed everyone, and we have altered and polluted the planet to such an extent that the environmental issues such as global warming have become by far the most significant issues of this millennia as they threaten all life on the planet. Serious problems, right? And now ask yourself this. Since there are enough resources and manpower on this planet for all of us to live, and not only abundantly, but also in balance with nature, the big question is, what then is the problem? Why are two of every five people in the world living in poverty? Why are there people who cannot get proper nutrition, sanitation, and medical care? Let's repeat the startling and simple truth that is the cornerstone for finding a solution. If we choose to make life work for everyone, there are enough resources and manpower on this planet for all of us to live abundantly. Just now, close your eyes and ponder for a minute. Let it really sink in. Ask yourself why it isn't happening. Then, you may well ask yourself, what can we do about it? The forces at work that are causing the imbalances seem to be beyond our control. There are too many environmental, economic, political, and social causes and situations to correct that it's simply overwhelmingly impossible. At best, most solutions are a band-aid approach since everything is interconnected. For example, we can't address starvation in a given geographical area by simply providing food because there are usually political, economic, and environmental causal factors that are quite complex. Part of the problem is the pervasive, long-standing attitude of againstness that we hold towards each other and towards others. This againstness probably stems from our need or addiction to control our lives. This often happens at the expense of another, and it permeates most of, most of the interactions between one power broker and another, between one interested party and another, and even between one family member and another. This againstness, along with the willingness to go for a creative approach, to collectively make our planetary situation truly work for everyone are roadblocks we must overcome. Given all the imbalances on the planet and the destruction of our environment, the sands are rapidly running through the hourglass for life as we know it on Earth. There is an answer, but it means that we must start making the planet work for all life on the planet. Stated simply, if we're going to continue to have a world, we're going to have to start making it work for everyone. Given the connectedness of all things, we must go after the one thing that can address and include everything else, and that is how we as people live together. Currently, we live in what can be best described as an everyone-for-themselves world. That may look like every country for themselves or every family or every whatever grouping that all boils down to everyone-for-themselves model. We do not have a what-would-work-for-all-of-us mentality and approach to life. The everyone-for-themselves approach to living and survival is so ingrained through thousands of years of practice that most people have never even conceived of an alternative approach, especially one that would include our entire planet. The piecemeal way our lives are set up, the way our cities are designed, and the way our economy runs all have to end or have the end result of isolating and separating us. They are set up for us to try to survive and to get ahead on our own and to continue to intrude upon and disrupt our environment. Therefore, we need to move away from this individualistic model to one that really works for all of us and for all. We have to start acting like one family where the needs of the one are the concern of everyone. This does not mean taking care of those who are thought of as not contributing, but it does mean setting up how we live together in a way that truly works for everyone. This is a total systems approach. The systems approach tells us that all things are interconnected and that to change a part, i.e. poverty or our ecology, 
We therefore need to change the entire system in order to really create effective changes. At this point in our history, nothing less, is nothing less will work for all of us. This new model has to be that we live on this planet in a way that is for the highest good of all life, so that we all can experience more abundance, health, nurturing, loving, and fun. Think about it. It's very simple to see the solution. In fact, it's so simple that's why it's so hard. Because in our fragmented approach to trying to understand and solve things, we're looking for something complicated to get us out of our present argument. We have so many thousands of years of programming in our power-based, everyone-for-themselves paradigm to overcome that it's difficult to perceive workable solutions for the planet as a whole. We have an endless history of againstness and conflict that get our minds focused and locked for survival on our own as opposed to looking at life as a cooperative adventure that can work for all mankind and for all life on the planet. We need to create a new model. All the isms, capitalism, communism, socialism, nationalism, racism, sexism, etc. are not working for us, so we have no large-scale model of change to look at. However, change on the scale that is needed can only be bought when people see and experience a better way. Spot, not bought. <laughs> Since the everyone for themselves approach isn't working for the planet, why do we continue to do it? Because we just do life that way. That's the way life is. But why, when it really isn't working for the individuals and for the well-being of the entire planet, do we continue rather than seeking a more workable alternative? Because we've done it this way for thousands of years. It must then either be the best way or the only way. But why haven't we considered other alternatives? We don't know. It's all we know. It's the way things are. <laughs> He's got a little cartoon here of a guy who's like basically prison, but like his cage is just like around himself and nowhere else. And it says, help, I'm in prison. I want out of here. We are only limited by our assumptions. The assumption that we must continue doing the everyone-for-themselves model has us and our world in prison. Fortunately, the best way to show this is also the easiest way for a group of people to bring to pass. Easiest for a group of people to bring this to pass, yes. The way we live together and relate together in community is the basic building block that is needed to transform the planet. If we design communities based on a highest good for everyone model, we can live very, very abundant lifestyles that would appeal to almost everyone while simultaneously restoring our environment. This book, then, is about how we can live in a community for the highest good of all life and about the ultimate transformation of the planet, which will be caused by making life work for all of us. As you continue reading, you will keep hearing some, of, some form of this term for the highest good over and over again. I apologize if this term doesn't just roll off the tongue, but I don't know of any other term that fully encompasses the concept of making the wor world work for everyone and for the planet. It includes both creating the outer form to work for all life and the consciousness, which that choice requires, and it permeates every aspect of how we choose to live together on this planet. It's an internal commitment to all life on this earth to wanting the best for all life on the planet, and it's putting that into action by fundamentally changing the form and consciousness of how we live together. It is the antithesis of the short-sighted everyone-for-themselves paradigm that has wrecked havoc on the earth and resulted in the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual hardships and lack that touch of our, and, and the lack 
that touch all of our lives in varying degrees. Again, the simple truth. There are enough resources and manpower on this planet for all of us to live very abundantly and in harmony with ourselves, each other, and the environment if we change our model of living and our consciousness from everyone for themselves to a highest good for everyone model. Drink this, for this must be our next evolution. As soon as you, um, as you look at this idea, I invite you to expand your consciousness to include the welfare of the entire planet. Imagine that you are all people in all countries and in all situations. In many cases, you would currently have basic human needs that are not being met, and you would be living on the edge of the very edge of survival. This is uh, from the uh, Neil Donald Walsh's Conversations with God. He's got a little excerpt in here. That's the guy who did the forward. From God, in terms of geopolitics, why not work together as a world to meet the most basic needs of everyone? The author, doing that, or no, we're doing that, or trying. God, after all these thousands of years of human history, what's, that's the most you can say? The fact is, you have barely evolved at all. You still operate in a primitive, every-person-for-himself mentality. You plunder the earth, rape her of her resources, exploit her people, and systematically disenfranchise those who would disagree with you for doing all of this, calling them the radicals. You do this for your own selfish purposes because you've developed a lifestyle that you cannot maintain any other way. You must cut down the millions of acres of trees each year or you won't be able to have your Sunday paper. You must destroy miles of the protective ozone which covers your planet or you cannot have your hairspray. You must pollute your rivers and streams beyond repair or you cannot have your industries to give you bigger, better, and more. And you must exploit the least among you, the least advantaged, the least educated, the least aware, or you cannot live at the top of the hill and unheard of land unnecessary luxury or and unnecessary luxury. Finally, you must deny that you are doing this, or you cannot live with yourself. You cannot find it in your heart to live simply so that others may, live sim may simply live. That bumper sticker wisdom is too simple for you. It is too much to ask, too much to give. After all, you've worked so hard for what you've got. You ain't given up none of it. And if the rest of the human race to say nothing of your own children's children have to suffer for it, tough bananas, right? You did what you had to do to survive and to make it. They can do the same. After all, it is every man for himself, is it not? Author, is there any way out of this mess? God says, yes. Shall I say it again? A shift of consciousness. You cannot solve the problems which plague humankind through governmental action or political means. You have been trying that for thousands of years. The change must be made, can be made, only in the hearts of man. Neil Donald Walsh, Conversations with God, Book 2. Now to continue with the end of this chapter. However, the solution is so simple that it has escaped us. Let's make the planet work for everyone. Let's choose to live for the highest good of all life. As you continue reading, I invite you to toss out your reference points and to step outside the box of how you think life has to be. So hold on to your hat as I first point out the obvious in terms of current conditions on the planet and then I offer a practical solution for not only saving the planet, but also making this earth a more enjoyable place to hang out for all people and for all life. All right, that's the end of Chapter 1. I'm going to bring on Thunder. What did you think of the yeah. first chapter? Uh, <clears throat> I can't wait to hear more, actually. I, like I said, this guy is hes amazing. Um, 
as I'm sitting here listening, I'm also thinking we've got to figure out a way to get this guy and Jock and Roxanne together <laughs> to collaborate. Yeah. Because, I mean, look, these are the ideas. These are the things that we in the Zeitgeist Movement should be focusing on, okay? Not this petty bullcrap that has seemed to proliferate all of our energy and taken up all of our energy lately. I won't get into it. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, Thunder, you wouldn't be talking about, you know, things like how we moderate the forums or, you know. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, we've got to stop with this fighting about our petty differences because we can't afford to do it anymore. And, and Peter said it well, we've got to do something or we're freaking doomed. We've got to change. We have got to do something different. And we've got to be focusing on just what on, – on, and focusing not only on the ideas, but the people who are coming up with the ideas like, like this guy. And that's where we need to be putting all of our attention. Because if we don't, if we just keep fighting amongst ourselves and arguing about stupid, petty, idiotic things, we're doomed. We're frickin' doomed. Well, I agree. Um, that was, I think you basically said it. I'm going to go ahead and move on to Chapter 2 then. Okay. Uh, chapter 2. Needs of the planet, seeds of change. As a starting point for looking at the imbalances on the planet that need to be addressed, let's briefly take a look at the situation we as people on planet Earth find ourselves in at the beginning of the 21st century. Since you are probably well aware of many of our problems, I don't want to go into great depth on these issues. However, I do want to touch on them so that we can see later in this book how our proposed highest good model relates to resolving these problems. I would also like to point out that while this needs, assess this needs assessment is being done by sections, all the sections are in fact interrelated and thus my examination by section is purely for the purpose of simplicity. This by no means a complete list of this is by no means a complete list of the challenges we face, just an across the board sampler. As you read this chapter, please also keep in mind that this is not a doomsday scenario because we will be presenting a workable solution for not only surviving but even improving the quality of life for all life on the planet. The environment. All of us living in the latter half of the twentieth century have lived with the threat of nuclear holocaust hanging over us. Surprisingly, though, as that threat has subsided, it is revealed to us that the real apocalypse is the ongoing destruction of our environment that now threatens the survival of our life on our planet. It's ironic that the ultimate threat to our way of life was never really war, but rather our way of life itself, with our patterns of consumption, pollution, environmental destruction, and the effects of the unequal distribution of wealth. The disastrous results of our way of life have been much more insidious than war because the effects have been building more slowly. It's not like, unlike the strange phenomenon that biologists call the boiled frog syndrome. If you put a frog in a pot of water on the fire and slowly increase the heat, the frog just sits there. Finally, at 100 degrees Celsius, the water boils and the frog dies. Like the frog, most people continue to be unaware of the seriousness of our environmental degradation. Nobody seems to either know what to do about this impending disaster or be willing to truly own the problems and take a whole different course of action in order to resolve them. Our environmental plunge is tied into how the whole game of life has been played on this planet for thousands of years, so we may well have to take a fresh look at our assumptions about life to come up with some solutions on how to save the planet. 
In fact, as many authorities have warned, unless we take drastic measures soon and change how we are interacting with our environment, we may well experience an ecological collapse sometime within the next couple of decades. Note he said, ecological collapse. In early 1992, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and England's Royal Society of London issued a joint report warning, if current predictions of population growth prove accurate and patterns of human activity on this planet remain unchanged, science and technology may not be able to prevent either irrevocable degradation of the environment or continued poverty for much of the world. Later that year, 1,600 scientists, including 102 Nobel laureates, issued a warning to humanity which was even less optimistic. No more than one or two decades remain before the chance to avert the threats we now confront will be lost and the prospects of humanity immeasurably diminished. They noted that the continuation of our destructive way of life may so alter the living world that it will be unable to sustain life in the manner that we know. A great change in our stewardship of the earth and life on it is required if vast human misery is to be avoided and our global home on the planet is not to be irretrievably mutilated. A new ethic is required, which must motivate a great movement, convincing reluctant leaders and reluctant governments and reluctant peoples themselves to effect the needed changes. There is strong, this is from Agenda 21, the agreement adopted by all participations in the nations, um, participating nations in the United Nations 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. This next thing. There is strong evidence from the world scientific community that humanity is very, very close to crossing certain ecological thresholds for the support of life on Earth. The Earth's ozone layer, our only protection from the harmful rays of the sun, is being depleted. Massive erosion is causing a rapid loss in the fertile soil of our planet, and with it, a potentially drastic drop in the ability to produce food for our world's people. Mass destruction of the world's forests is contributing to the spread of the world's deserts increasing the loss of biodiversity and hampering the ability of the Earth's atmosphere to cleanse itself. The planet's vast oceans are losing their animal life at a staggering rate and are fast reaching the limit of their ability to absorb humanity's waste. The land, animals, and plants of our planet are experiencing a rate of extinction unseen on Earth since the last time of the dinosaurs, extinctions brought on by, not by cataclysmic events of nature but by impact of a single species. Homo sapiens. The increasing pollution of air, water, and land by hazardous and toxic waste is causing widespread health problems that are only now beginning to be understood. All of these problems are being intensified by the explosive growth in the sheer number of human beings in the last half of the 20th century. For the first time in history, humanity must face the risk of unintentionally destroying the foundations of life on Earth. The global scientific consensus is that if the current levels of environmental deterioration continue, the delicate, life-sustaining qualities of this planet will collapse. It is a stark and frightening potential to prevent such a collapse and an awesome challenge for the global community. Now, back to the book. Also in 1992, Danello Meadows, Dennis Meadows, and Jorgen Randers wrote in their book, Beyond the Limits, that we have overshot the carrying capacity of the planet. Their research shows that we are now mining fuels, minerals, topsoil, groundwater, forests, and fisheries much faster than these resources are regenerating themselves. Processing the throughput from this mining is creating pollution, which has begun to overwhelm nature's capacity to detoxify it. 
On the basis of elaborate computer simulations of our current way of life, the Meadows Group estimated that an economic and ecological collapse is almost inevitable within 40 years. A shorter time frame has been given by the respected Nobel Prize recipient, Dr. Helen Caldicott, who emphasized in her book, If You Love the Planet, A Plan to Heal This Earth, that if we don't act now, by the year 2000, it may be too late to save the most life systems on the planet. We could sit scores... I mean, we can cite scores, more reports from reputable scientists that give us similar prog prognostications, prognostications. Suffice it to say that there seems to be a consensus that our current way of living has led us into serious jeopardy. Also, there are plenty of great books that, where you can read about the gravity of our current environmental crisis, whereas this book is about transforming, transforming our way of life to make it work for all of us and deliver us from these dire predictions. Of course... We all are now aware of the global due to the greenhouse effect. Excessive carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels and forests combined with the release of several manufactured gases is forming an atmospheric barrier that traps heat. Since the advent of the Industrial Revolution, man-made carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere has increased by nearly 6,000%. Global carbon emissions now stand at more than 6 billion tons annually, while the maximum amount that the world's oceans can absorb is only one-sixth that amount. The remainder accumulates in the atmosphere where it, along with other emissions of heat-trapping waste industrial gases, continues to warm the atmosphere. Yes, I know, not everybody in the Zeitgeist Movement believes in global warming. Dumping large quantities of, of carbon in the air still is a stupid idea. That said, at the 1995 United Nations Conference on Global Warming, Conference Chairwoman Angelica Merkel, Germany's environmental minister, declared in her opening address, we have to come to recognize that the greenhouse effect is capable of destroying humanity. Although predictions vary on, a long, on the long range of effects of this greenhouse phenomenon, such as the rise in sea level from the melting of the polar ice caps, potentially the most frightening would be the severe droughts and heat waves caused by a reduction of agricultural productivity. The high temperatures and moisture reductions from the climatic climatic changes would severely impact crop yields. If these events happen as predicted, we may be on, the course, on a course where the United States, the world's leading grain exporter, will not even be able to produce enough food to supply itself. But perhaps even greater concern is the destruction of the Earth's ozone layer by manufactured chemicals. The best known of these is chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, carry chlorine to the ozone layer where one chlorine atom can destroy as many as 100,000 ozone molecules. Since CFCs take many years to rise up to the ozone layer, we won't even know exactly how much damage we've done for decades, and we continue to release more ozone-destroying compounds as we seem unwilling, unwilling to totally stop producing them. In the worst-case scenario, the ozone layer could become so depleted that too much ultraviolet radiation would strike the Earth's surface. The Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, generally conservative, predicted that this will cause 80 million new skin cancer cases over the next 80 years. The UN reported for, that for each 1% of ozone layer lost, there are 100,000 additional cases of blindness caused by cataracts and 3% increase in the skin cancer worldwide. In Australia, melanoma has doubled in the past 10 years. However, that pales in comparison to what would happen if enough ultraviolet gets into to destroy the phytoplankton on the surface of the oceans. That would cause the breakdown of the entire chain of life on our planet. Adding to the greenhouse effect and the rapidly increasing desertification of our lands and in, in 
lands is deforestation, more than half of all planet's trees are for, and forests are gone. At the current rate of rainforest destruction, more than 125,000 square miles a year, the rest could vanish before 2025. Yearly, forests decrease by an area larger than the size of Peru, according to the World Watch Institute. This devastation is commonly blamed on third world, third world economics and overpopulation. But in reality, most of the rainforests are destroyed by for foreign cattle, mining, and timber interests. Because far more land has been damaged by livestock than anything else, it is my personal opinion that more harm has been done to the planet up to the point, this point through our fascination with beef consumption than any other single factor. But it's not only third world rainforests that are disappearing. Less than 7% of the U.S. forests remain since the time of Columbus. In addition, acid rain from the burning of fossil fuels has seriously damaged about 15% of Europe's remaining forests, as well as affecting the health of North American forests and contaminating our groundwater. That's one of those things that um, is the reason why I don't really care about the whole global warming thing is because acid rain is still caused by that, and we know that the things that caused, allegedly caused global warming, we know that. And that's why I feel that fighting over the whole global warming thing is silly. Anyway, the forces that have fueled these crises are economically driven and once put into motion are difficult to stop. Therefore, the environment routinely gets sacrificed for the economy. It is precisely this kind of ill-advised economic philosophy that has led the United States to losing over 75% of what may be our most precious life-giving resource, its topsoil. 200 years ago, most of the U.S. had at least 21 inches of topsoil. With the rate of loss continuing to accelerate, we lose an inch every 16 years, it is now less than six, it is now less than six inches. Historically, topsoil depletion had caused the demise of many of the world's greatest civilizations, and the U.S. Soil Conservation Service reports that the U.S. loses cropland to soil erosion at an annual rate equal to the size of Connecticut. The UN in its resolution on topsoil noted that the world loses 24 billion tons of topsoil annually. There is only an average of 68 inches of topsoil left on Earth. That many, regions have, that many regions have surpassed the carrying capacity of the land and that it takes anywhere from 100 years to 60 million years to produce just one inch of topsoil. They further stated that we may have only 10 year, a 10-year window of opportunity to turn around this catastrophic destruction of ecosystems, watersheds, organic matter, and topsoil. I'm going to read something here before we go on. For humans to cause, uh, to cause species to become extinct and destroy the biological diversity of God's creation, for humans to degrade the integrity of the, earth by, of the earth by causing changes in its climate, stripping the earth of its natural forests, or destroying its wetlands, for humans to contaminate waters, its land, its air, and its life with poisonous substances, these are sins. His Holiness Bartholomew I. Imagine, I guess that was a priest or something at some point. At the present rate of extinction, estimates range from 20,000 to over 1,000 every year. We may lose 20% of all species on the planet within the next 20 to 40 years. Paul Hawken, The Ecology of Commerce. The UN Environmental Program also said that 35% of the world's land surface is threatened by desertification. That's more than one-third of all land on the planet. Add to that the increasing world population and the devastating effects of global warming on agriculture, and we may see people leaving this planet like never before. Hang in there, though. Remember that we're going to get to a workable solution. 
In terms of food resources, the planet has already peaked in the amount of grain and fish per person that we can produce, and our output is now declining. That combined with an exploding world population means that the world's food production per capita has dropped steadily since 1984, and that the rate of decline will increase considerably as the population continues to rise, our soil continues to deteriorate, our water supplies decrease, and global warming impacts our crop yields. With the declining grain harvest, our grain reserve, the world's food safety net, is now the lowest on record. Though our Midwest supplies much of the grain, its water supply, the Algalo Aquifer, the largest store of groundwater in the world, is being used 10,000 times faster than it is being replenished. The aquifer took almost a half a million years to form, and it will deplete, be depleted within 15 to 40 years. This is a starvation event waiting to happen soon right here. The World Watch Institute State of the World 1994 reported that human demands are now approaching the limits of oceanic fisheries to supply fish. Worldwide fish harvests are now decreasing due to overfishing and the effects of pollution. Of rangelands to support cattle and in many countries of the hydro, hydrological cycle to produce fresh water, every now, even now 60 million people starve to death every year. 40,000 children on this planet starve to death every day. Imagine if you were watching one child starving to death every two seconds. Today that problem may be viewed by some people as being over there in some foreign place, but in our tomorrows it will be here unless we drastically change our way of living on the planet. I'm going to read here from the United Nations Resolution on Topsoil, Productions and Replenishment. Whereas topsoil is absolutely essential for the nourishment and sustenance of plant life, so vital to the preservation of, preservation of Earth's ecosystems that provide our food, shelter, clothing, and health, and bearing in mind that the value of topsoil for the protection of the flora and, fa and fauna, including soil biota and, and the biodiversity of species and nature and the man-made conditions, as well as for water quality and water retention, for afforestation um, and reforestation, for sustainable food production and subsequently for reduction in greenhouse gases affecting the ozone layer, and noting that topsoil loss is over 23 billion tons annually and realizing that there exists only an average of 68 inches of topsoil left on Earth today, and realizing that in each nation many regions have surpassed the carrying capacity of the land, and whereas to current depletion rates we may have only a 10-year window of opportunity to turn around this catastrophic destruction of ecosystems above and below ground, watersheds, organic matter, and topsoil, and realizing that our current dependence on geological evolution produces only one inch, 2.5 centimeters of topsoil during a period ranging from 100, meters, or 100 years to 60 million years, and noting that there are only limited conservation and replenishment efforts being undertaken currently in any one nation, and noting that processes exist to produce one to 100 tons per day site of fertile humus through topsoil production centers, Therefore, calls upon all governments to place as a high priority the preservation and replenishment of the vital topsoil layer. Duh. And further calls upon governments to continue, uh, governments to continue efforts in topsoil evaluation, monitoring topsoil loss, conservation, and production also. Calls upon all governments to establish topsoil production centers in farmlands, resource recovery centers, schoolyards, neighborhoods, villages, wildlife preservations, cities, and the industrial sites, and encourages all governments to establish topsoil production centers to promote educational information and training programs, and calls upon the United Nations, especially the pertinent agencies of the United Nations system, 
to promote, develop, and set aside funds for the purpose of supporting topsoil conservation, topsoil production and training programs, and calls upon the non-government organizations, educational institutions, women and youth networks, citizen groups, and individuals to support government efforts as well as to mobilize their own human and other resources and production efforts and activities to strengthen political will for urgently needed action in this area. Duh. There's a, he's got a little cartoon here. It says, we've lost 10% of the fertile soil on Earth since 1945. We'll double our population in 50 years, and replacement of topsoil takes 500 years. At the bottom, the punchline says, more evidence that we're not too good at math. Now, in terms of food resources, the planet has already peaked in the amount of grain and fish per person that we can produce. Um, we already read that part, sorry. Um, the World Watch Institute's State of the World 1994 reported that human demands are now approaching the limits of oceanic fisheries. Oh, well, we read that too. Sorry about that, guys. <sighs> Our brief treaties on the environment would, only, would not be complete without a few conservative estimates from the EPA. According to the EPA's toxic release inventory, the industrial releases of toxic materials into the U.S. environment to wastewater treatment plants, landfills, and directly into our air, rivers, lakes, and underground wells by just the top 50 products of the chemical industries was 539 billion pounds per year. The total from all sources takes into account only the relatively few chemicals that the EPA certifies as harmful, and even the EPA stressed that this is a low estimate. The Global Tomorrow Coalition estimated that we annually produce more than a metric ton of hazardous waste for every person in the country. Of that total, about 500 billion cubic meters is radioactive waste. The EPA also reported that 40% of the U.S. population lives in areas where, is, where the air quality is unhealthy. Worldwide, 70% of all city dwellers, more than 1.5 billion people, breathe unhealthy air. In Russia, where environmental safety first became a casualty of the conflict with the West and later of their economic chaos, Alexei V. Yabakolov, the father of Russia's environmental movement, reported that between 14% and 15% of Russia's territory is now so polluted that it is unsafe for habitation. However, 40 million people live in those areas anyway. So why, with our health and survival of the planet on the line, don't we change the way we're treating our environment? With our lifestyles and economies, economic choices already set in motion, there are difficult trade-offs in the decisions we make. Although we know that certain chemicals are, ca are causing havoc to our environment, as well as creating health risks, the solutions are not easy because there are billions and billions of dollars involved. Picking just one of the myriad of examples, we have the, me the methyl bromide situation. Methyl bromide, one of the most widely used pesticides on Earth, has increasingly become the pesticide of choice for many farmers. One of the reasons for this is that several other pesticides have been banned because they seep into and pollute the groundwater and are linked with cancer. However, methyl bromide goes to the opposite direction, rising into the atmosphere where it, re where it is responsible for at least as much as 10% of the yearly depletion of the ozone layer. We have recently discovered that it destroys ozone 40 times faster than CFCs. Weighed against, this, uh, weighed against that is the chemical industry's $3 million argument that banning the pesticide would result in devastating worldwide crop losses and corresponding economic consequences. Consequently, a U.S. Department of Agriculture official said that instead of banning the pesticide, we should, make, we should 
move much more slowly because there's too much at stake. Move much more slowly? Too much at stake? This is absolute madness. It could already be too late for our ozone layer, yet we persist in trading our future with the cra- for the crazy economic system we're enmeshed in? Granted, with the way we're doing agriculture, industry, and our library lifestyles, there are no easy choices. Civilization has usually meant how far we can remove ourselves from nature, and that circumstance has led to our current ecological crisis. The situation is further complicated by economics and politics as big money special interest groups seek to either maintain the status quo or change it in a way that they can still lock in their profits. Because there are billions and billions at stake, there has been a well-thought-out well corporate, corporate strategy to cast doubt on the urgency of our environmental problems. In her book, The Global Spin, Corporate Assault on Environmentalism, Sharon Breeder writes, Corporations have used think tanks, and a few, I'm sorry, think tanks and a few dissident scientists to cast doubt on the existence and magnitude of various environmental problems, including global warming, ozone depletion, and species extinction. The strategy is aimed at crippling the impetus for governmental action to solve these problems, actions which might adversely affect corporate profits. As evidence of this strategy, Beter cited an author of a handbook on public relations, Phil Leslie, who advised corporations, people generally do not favor action on a non-alarming situation when arguments seem to be balanced on both sides and there is a clear doubt. The weight of impressions on the public must be balanced so people will have doubts and lack motivation to take action. Accordingly, means are needed to get balancing information into the mainstream from sources that the public will find credible. There is no need for a clear-cut victory. Nurturing public doubt by demonstrating that this is not a clear-cut situation in support of the opponents usually is all that is necessary. Boy, did they ever have that figured out. Right as how to right, um, figure out right as to how to fool most of the people into doing nothing so they can keep earning their corporate profits for whatever time there is left before the planet falls apart for all of us. However, these people in their selfishness are not thinking about their grandchildren let alone the millions who already suffer because of the corporate abuses of the environment. To really get what he's trying to say here is that basically in the public relations department, they tell people that all you have to do is cast doubt by trying to provide credible, credible scientists on the other side of things, and then nobody will then at that point favor you know, action. They'll basically, if, it's, if it's easier for them to just continue to live their life with their 2.5 kids and their SUVs and their white picket fences, than it would be for them to face the fact that they're doing something dangerous. Well, as long as there's a couple scientists at least who say, oh, that's just propaganda, don't worry about that. Well, then all of a sudden, you don't care. You just go back to American Idol. Anyway. Um, however, these people in their selfishness are not thinking about their grandchildren, let alone the millions who already suffer because of the corporate abuses of, vi- of the environment. If you don't think corporations are doing this, think about what the tobacco industry got away with. For decades, the link between smoking and disease was known, but the corporations were able to just blow enough, just enough smoke by presenting balanced reports that the health risks so that they, about the health risks so that they confused the issue long enough to continue to earn billions. Finally, the public outcry prevailed to place some limitations, but millions died and continue to die preventable and often painful deaths. Still, this government continues to condone and subsidize tobacco. We simply have to find a better economic paradigm than our current model. If you are not already aware of the environmental crisis, please awaken. 
The simple truth is that we are the last generation on Earth that can save the planet. Every day we are discovering new and previously unknown evidence of environmental damage. One day, numbered among the thousands of species that die out every year due to man's destruction of their habitat, we may have well find we may fell I'm sorry, we may well find mankind itself extinct. Our epitaph could read, Amidst the prospects of plenty, we die together because of the way we choose to live together. The end of the human race will be that uh, the end of the human race will be that it will eventually die of civilization. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson. Is there a health cost for all these pollutants entering the environment? A growing number of experts believe that most of our killer diseases are a direct result of our industrialized society. Again, let's look at the conservative EPA for evidence. The EPA estimates that 100,000 American workers die each year from job-related diseases, including exposure to deadly chemicals. Farmers who use herbicides run six times the risk of contracting certain kinds of cancer. And children in homes where pesticides are used have seven times the chance of contracting leukemia. The average American household also uses 25 gallons of hazardous chemicals per year. The EPA estimates that 400,000 Americans contract toxic-related diseases every year from 400 different toxins in their bodies. That is a very, very conservative estimate as we continue to discover more about the effects of toxic chemicals and the insidious ways that they combine together to do even greater damage have on the health of human beings and all life forms. A growing number of medical practitioners believe that many of our minor illnesses, which look like colds or influenza, are in fact largely caused by contaminants in our air, water, and food. Our daily exposure to toxins is incredible. The EPA reported that we ingest an average of four pounds of pesticides per year and have residues from 400 different toxins in our body fat. Not only do most household products contain toxins, but besides the more than 2,000 registered pesticides in our food, over 3,000 chemicals are intentionally added to our food, as well as more than 10,000 unintentional chemical compounds that find their way into our food. Many of these, such as the sulfide sprayed on our produce, build up on our bodies and eventually can make us sick. In a random survey of 900 breastfeeding mothers across the U.S., there were enough poisonous chemicals significantly exceeding safe levels found in the mother's milk in 100% of the cases. In fact, mother's milk would be banned by the food safety laws of industrialized nations if it were sold as a packaged good. Imagine the breast milk of almost every single industrialized country nursing mother. Toxic. What on earth are we doing to ourselves? We keep hearing about the link between cancer and toxins. In 1900, cancer was only the 10th leading cause of death, accounting for only 3% of the deaths in the U.S. Today is the second leading cause of death and claims more Americans each year than we lost in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined. Many scientists now feel that the presence of toxic chemicals in our bodies is largely responsible for these immune system epidemics. Remember the dream that science was going to deliver us from diseases like cancer? Well, instead, while some research proceeds to that end, the results have been far outweighed by the scientists creating the disease-producing toxic chemicals. It's what happens when the economics are everyone for themselves rather than working for the highest good of all. Yes, there is a cost to our unthinking pollution in our industrialized lives. Included in that industrialized lifestyle are huge farms where massive amounts of chemicals are used to grow our food. 
The destruction of the environment caused by modern agriculture is based on the philosophy of ignoring nature and trying to increase production in the short term. We're also finding that pesticides and chemical fertilizers are now so prevalent in the environment worldwide that they are causing many mammals, birds, and fish to become sterile, and many species may be a generation away from extinction. The chemicals so widely used to kill insects and weeds and fertilize soil, as well as being in many off-the-shelf products, mimic estrogen and inhibit testosterone to the point where these species are unable to reproduce. Because the adult populations appear normal, this problem has largely gone unnoticed and is only recently coming into focus. However, it's quite alarming because the disorders are so widespread and we have no idea what the effect of extinction of so many different species will have on our chain of life. The buildup of these chemicals in our body may also be the reason why the human male sperm count is dropping and by, and by one-fourth of our college students are sterile compared to one-half of, of 1% 40 years ago. The toxins may also explain the sharp increases in prostate and testicular cancer as well as breast cancer and endometriosis in women. In the last few years, infectious diseases have risen significantly, now killing 16.5 million people each year. In nature, we are seeing the mass die-off of entire groups of mammals due to the pollution, weakening their immune systems, and consequently their ability to fend off diseases that are normally not life-threatening. Our immune systems are virtually identical to those of other mammals, so whatever is happening to them can and will be happening to us. As an example, in the Canadian Arctic, the Inuits continue to eat as they have for thousands of years, living on a staple of marine mammals and fish. But now, as a result of the chemical warfare we've been waging against the planet, the Inuits' immune systems are breaking down, causing them to be ravaged by disease. The most vulnerable are the breastfed infants, who feed on some of the most contaminated milk on Earth. The Inuits' women's milk fat contained over 1,000 parts per million of PCBs. Among many devastating results, one in a four Inuit children has chronic hearing loss due to infections. While the effects of PCBs may be observable first in the Inuits, the 1979 government study found PCBs present in 100% of human sperm samples. PCBs are probably the most notorious of the toxic chemicals used on food. A few parts per billion can cause birth defects in lab animals. Just ask the Inuits what this pesticide can do when it gets in our, in our waters. Three years after Monsanto, fuck Monsanto, the manufacturing and production of PCBs, the feces of 23 of their 24 plant workers, I'm sorry, I'm going to read this again because I screwed it up and it's very important. Three years after Monsanto, the manufacturer began production of PCBs, the faces of 23 of their 24 plant workers became disfigured. I wonder if they gave their workers balancing reports. Hello, we're killing ourselves and it's about money. There are billions at stake. We still use dioxin, which the EPA reported likely causes cancer and can damage human immune and reproductive systems, even in trace amounts. Dioxin is one of the most deadly chemicals we've ever created. Just one ounce could kill 10 million people. Yet dioxin is still in use as a common bleach for pulp and paper products, so they can be nice and white at the expense of our environment. And a number of other industrial processes, including herbicides, where it is killing properties make it very effective. We have sprayed millions of pounds on our farmland. It's a crazy world where people are allowed to do this for economic reasons while dioxin gets into our food chain and slowly kills us. 
Why is it still in use? Dow Chemical, Monsanto, BASF kills us. I'm sorry. And other manufacturers have done everything they can to hide the dangers. In this case, though, it's not just about profits. Because dioxin was the lethal component of Agent Orange, the corporations also do their disinformation and misinformation to protect themselves from the veterans' lawsuits that were a result of the truth were known. That's just despicable. I'm going to go ahead and pause this here. We'll finish the rest of this chapter later. I wanted to give some time for commentary. So, what did you think of that, Thunder? I'm disgusted. <laughs> wow. I don't know. I'm speechless, and that doesn't happen with me very often. I, I, how can people look on this information that is so readily available? I mean, this is not the only book that cites such information and just turn their head as if, oh, well, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I, I, I can't fathom how, I mean, I just, I can't, I, I don't even have the words. I, I can't fathom how people can just ignore this. Yeah, that, that last part about the, the faces. Yeah. Becoming disfigured. Yeah. Uh, Monsanto, the manufacturer, began production of the PCBs. The faces of their 20, of 23 of their 24 plant workers became disfigured. And then he says, I wonder if he gave them balancing reports, meaning... Did you give them some, you know, some counter bullshit to try to discredit, you know, the obvious signs that there was a problem? This is one of the oh. reasons why I don't jump on the global warming is a farce thing with, with both feet is there's just too many people who benefit from global warming, you know, from basically from being allowed to dump carbons in the air. Right. You know, and that's yeah, why I mean, it scares yeah. me because both sides of the argument have some financial backing, but overall, as was, was pointed out actually in Leonardo DiCaprio's recent movie, um, that the global warming gases that we're so worried about also cause things like acid rain, as I brought up earlier in the show. Right. So I don't see how allowing people to do this kind of pollution is still good, regardless of whether global warming was the cause. But go right, ahead. and that's, yeah, whether or not global warming is real it is irrelevant to the point of we're screwing this planet up. The dirt, the soil, the trees, the 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 water, uh, the air, the atmosphere, whatever. It, we're destroying, we're literally killing the very thing that brings us life. How can that be considered sane by anybody's standards? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't I, I know. And that's, you know, this guy, this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this book. I mean, he's basically laying out in great detail a lot of the stuff that was brought up in the story of stuff. Um, you know, and like, you remember that I haven't had a chance to really do it because I don't know if I really have the video editing skills, but I'm sure you remember that guy who did that debunking supposedly the critique of the story of stuff because he was so ticked off that right. it was being shown in, you know, in schools and he couldn't handle that, you know, something other than capitalist propaganda was being shown to children. Uh, the guy was yeah. such a jerk. And when she brought up the, the breast milk thing, this is like yeah. earlier on in his comment, okay, Earlier on in his comments, he was saying, oh, well, you know, these things are accepted as, use, you know, as fine or acceptable risk, and you're so full of crap, you know, these chemicals aren't hurting anybody, you know. And then, you know, she goes on to point out that breast milk is polluted, okay, which is obvious sign that they, these chemicals are finding their way into our body. Right. Okay. 
you know, his only recourse was to say, well, she still says to go ahead and drink it anyway. What's that about? And I'm like, okay, so you don't deny that it's polluted, okay? You don't yeah. deny that apparently it's so polluted that if it were a marketable, you know, a marketable product, it would be pulled off the shelves, okay? Right, right. <laughs> but yeah. remember, these chemicals are fine, and, you know, that's all, you know, Green Party propaganda, you know, it's all crap, you know, just whatever. Yeah. Is that the way that these people handle this stuff? It's like how long they want to hold on to their cushy lifestyles. You know, is, right. is the part about this that's so disgusting to me is the the essentially the uh, sacrifices that they're making to the future of the planet so that they can continue to have all their nice stuff. You know, that's the way they think. Right. And, you know, we propose a solution that would allow everybody to have nice stuff and be ecologically sound. So. Right. You know, the fact that they're still clinging to this is so ridiculous to me. And, I, and, and more to the point, when you read this book, I mean, I remember because I usually read, you know, when I'm sitting down in the bathroom, and I just was reading this. I'm like, oh, my God. I, at one point, I was reading some of the statistics. I wanted to get up and do a show about it right that second, you know, because some right. of it was like, holy crap, did you know the situation was this bad? You know, right. I don't think people do. And I don't think they want to know. I, no, that is, that's the nail on the – you hit the nail on the head. I don't think they want to know. I, I think as long as, like you said before, they, you know, they live comfortable with their 72-inch widescreen TVs and their two-and-a-half kids going to private school and their three SUVs and their picket, white picket fence, they don't care. They just – we're fine in our little bubble. We don't care if the rest of the world is getting screwed. Well, you know, and it's – some of these things are a bit more obvious than others, okay? And that's the other day because my friend brought over his Xbox. And, you know, an Xbox is mostly made out of plastic. Most computer parts are made out of plastic. Plastic bottles are made out of plastic, obviously. And we just keep producing this stuff. We very rarely ever recycle plastic, okay? Right. And as proof positive that this is a problem, there's that spot in the bottom of, a, uh, I think it was the Atlantic Ocean, that's about the size of Texas. Yeah. That is nothing but plastic. A pile of plastic the size of Texas. Okay? And they don't and we just keep on producing plastic like it's no big deal, you know. Yeah. You remember that one at <laughs> oh, Are you gonna okay. reference the George Carlin thing about the earth plus plastic? <laughs> no, although I, I do like that, but no that, that wasn't it. You know, it, what I was gonna bring up though was um uh, the funny thing though was uh that you know, the guy who, uh, Mitchell Joachim, uh, the, the Ph.D. I brought on who, who was into green, like, designs and stuff, uh -huh. you know, he pointed out that, you know, it, it, he said that he thinks it's really funny that eventually, hopefully, we're going to get our brains together and make plastic illegal, at least the production of it, and that we're going to have to go to these landfills and start mining plastic. <laughs> Can you imagine that? You know, yeah. we'll make some money out of it. We'll, we'll end up, like, you know, with these advanced submarine programs, you know, to allow us to, to, to dig deep, you know, into the ocean so that we can get back our plastic that we left there. <laughs> no. Well, oh. you know, we're down to the last 90 seconds of this particular show. Um, I'll be reading more from this book later. Thanks, thank you, everybody, for coming on. Thank you, Thunder, for coming on. Did you have any closing statements? And don't forget yeah. to visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Yeah. Go ahead. v-radio.org. Make sure you get over there. Um, thanks for having me on again. I just want to leave our listeners with a thought that uh, so many people hold what we call our forefathers in this high esteem. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's time that we have a new set of forefathers because this is not just about us. You know, I just was blessed again with another grandchild last month. And I'm starting to think, you know, I, I realize and I'm facing the reality that I may not get to see the fruition of what we're doing now, but my children probably will, and definitely their children probably will. So at what point do we and all the listeners out there realize that we have to create a new paradigm? We have to be the new set of fathers that will be looked back on as the people that actually changed this planet for the betterment of everyone. Or we're not... Or we can have a, a set of founding, um, you know, people who handle dead bodies. What's the name for that? Yeah, founding morticians. These are the people who handle the destruction of our society. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather go with the former. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that was it for today's show. Uh, once again, folks, I mean, because now we're off the live stream, uh, do me a favor. Let me know. Give me some feedback. Would you make use of a toll-free listener number if I got one for you? Um, before I go investing in it, I'd like to get some feedback from you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and um, thanks a lot once again, Freelander, for coming on. And um, I'm going to go ahead and place once again some parting words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. You know what? Actually, I, I have a better idea. I'm going to play something else. Speaking <laughs> of George Carlin, you're going to like this. Okay. Great. Um, but uh, let's see here. Well, what did I do with it? I know I found it. But um, anyway, uh, and while I'm looking for this, uh, you know, I'm I'm still rolling around in my head just all the different things that he was saying, you know, and how uh, bad it was. Just I don't think people really, you know, I knew stuff was messed up. I didn't know it was that messed up. Yeah, you know? I have to admit, I don't. Uh, there's even some things that I turn turn a blind eye to. Mm-hmm. And when I hear it again or hear it in more detail, I just, I'm, I'm aghast. I'm beside myself uh, with fear that, you know, that, that we're just freaking doomed. And it's just, it's sad because we've got to do something different. We've got to. I agree. Well, um, I can't find this clip for now, so I'm just going to go ahead and end the show as I normally right. do. Thanks again for tuning in, folks, and um, I'll have some George Carlin for you next show, which actually should be a lot sooner. Now that I have um, this book, I can, you know, obviously I have a topic for future shows. So um, thanks again, Thunder, and um, I will talk to you guys later. Thank you for tuning in to V-Radio. Yeah. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.